Well, it's good to see you this morning, gentlemen. We're going to go ahead and uh, get started. We do have we do have some folks uh, out this morning um, in a bunch of different uh, different directions. So um, we'll uh, we've got a recording going on for them, like we do every single um, Tuesday morning. So if you ever miss Grace and Granite, you can go to the website and you can download uh, the. Uh, it's not really a podcast, but it's a recording. You can get it and uh, listen to it. If there's anything, that you, if you come into uh, Grace and Granite uh, farther in the process, you haven't been here from, from, from day one, that's totally fine. You know, the, 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 uh, the curriculum is designed where you can jump in and, and, uh, and, and jump out, and you can start at any time. It's three years rolling. So if you came in at a later time and, and you're looking through your book and you go, man, I'd really like to, I'd really like to read uh, or, or hear that message on forgiveness or whatever it is, uh, you can go on the website and uh, and get that uh, get that as well. We are on uh, page 115, and we're all about sanctification um, this uh, this semester. So we're on series eight, which is, actually falls under uh, biblical counseling and personal discipleship. Now. We've talked about biblical counseling before. What we mean by that is just biblical soul care. Uh, everyone uh, needs counsel and is in the process to receive it or give it, according to Galatians 6, 1 and 2. You are either someone who is restoring another person uh, to usefulness or you are the person who needs uh, restored. But within this category of biblical counseling and discipleship, um, we're looking specifically at sanctification. And so session three, sanctification becoming like Christ, is, is longer than normal. Uh, we normally get through a lesson uh, once a week or uh, two weeks. This has taken several, and it is, it is rich. And so we're going to be continuing in that, uh, in that this morning. Like we normally do, I have a little video that I'll show you. Uh, and I'll set that up before uh, before we do, and then remind you where we were. And uh, you had some homework, um, so I'll do like my professor would do: announce before I even pray that you had some homework, so you can sit there and be thinking, "Oh no, did I do the homework? What was the homework?" You can figure that out before we get there. You were to read the passages and actually, you know, think about uh, the conscience. Do you have a clear conscience? Uh, and then how can the conscience be damaged? And so we're going to start there and then leap into the second part uh, of the process of change. And so I'll remind you of all of that in just a minute. But we're going to open this morning uh, in the Word. So go to Psalm 32. And I will read. And then we will, we will pray. Psalm 32. It's a psalm of David. And it's all about what we're talking uh, about in this session. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Notice three different words for the comprehensive nature of our depravity, of our sin. Transgression, stepping over the line, sin, falling short of the target of God's glory, 
and then iniquity, which is the inner disposition of rebellion, enmity toward God. And all of that, every area, is cleansed. That's why David says the person is blessed. How blessed is he, and then look at the end of verse 2, in whose spirit there is no guile or deceit. He's, he's, he's honest with God, and he's honest with himself, and he's honest with man. And now David begins to start talking about um, the process that, that brought him to, to verse 1 and 2. He didn't, he didn't always experience what he just got done telling him, us that we're blessed if we have. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as... With the fever of fever heat of summer, there's David under conviction. He even affected him, affected him physically. It took his sleep away. It was day and night. It was the Lord's hand. And then watch what happens whenever he confesses. He repents. I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt. Of my sin. Beautiful picture there. David finally relents, confesses, repents, and then he receives the forgiveness of the Lord. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in the flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Boy, that is a leap from from being curled up in a fetal position uh, under the hand of God to saying, you're my hiding place, you preserve me from trouble, you, sur you surround me with songs, celebration of deliverance. And then watch how David uses this experience in his life, just like I have, just like you have. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. My counsel, you... I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the, the horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose, whose trappings include a bit or a bridle to, to hold them into check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. The Lord is speaking to, to David there. Continue to walk in, in a, with a repentant heart. Don't, don't make me um, put a bit in a bridle and you pull you. Don't. Keep a short account on sin. God will chasten you. Um, make it easy on yourself. Look at verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. In Psalm 51, David says, Then, after he confessed, I'll teach transgressors in their way so we get to instruct others about how blessed it is to be forgiven so let's go to god in prayer father i thank you for this word this clear word that you have given us thank you that we do not have to guess about what is pleasing to you what is good for us thank you that we we you didn't design it the walk uh, in a way where we have to get some type of special uh, prompting or 
or or vision or dream. It, it, it's laid out very clearly in your word, and we walk by faith and not by feeling or or by what we see. The objective truth in Scripture is our is our guide and our roadmap. And so I pray even today, Lord, as we talk about repentance and your grace, teach us, um, help me uh, to be to be helpful to these men. Thank you, Lord, that they love you um, so much that they would spend this hour uh, of their day with you, seeking you, seeking Christ. Help us to do that together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to watch a video. Uh, and it is about the topic of, of, of repentance. Um, and the guys that you're going to see here, this is actually uh, uh, an evangelistic video, if you, if you will. This is, there's a church in downtown London, uh, three graduates of the Master's Seminary that, uh, that are there, really, really good guys. They're doing a work in London, uh, church plant there. Uh, and then they produce little videos uh, to... As you know, London is very secular uh, in order to, to direct people. This one is on repentance, and I think it's an excellent on-ramp uh, and reminder to what we're talking about. So here goes, and enjoy the, the English accent. Saying, yes, I'm a sinner. They were saying, 
these are my sins against you, O God. Whatever happened to shame? People are trying ever so hard these days to get rid of shame. They say it's bad for you. And yet, the earliest Christians in Rome were repenting of their sin. And the Apostle Paul wrote to them about the things about which you are now ashamed. And he wasn't saying that that shame was bad for them. One of the words in the Bible for repentance means a thoroughgoing change of mind. If we're going to change our mind about our sinful behavior, about the things that God says are shameful, that means we'll be the opposite of proud about our sin. There's a sense in which if you still love your sin, you're not repenting. Changing your mind about your sin means you begin to hate the things you once loved. And you love the things you once hated. A lazy person who repents begins to hate doing nothing. A liar who repents begins to love truthfulness. It's a transformation of your thinking about sin. And that's why real repentance doesn't stop with our thoughts. Transformed thoughts lead to transformed behavior. You can't separate the two. Another word for repentance in the Bible is to turn. God says to people that he doesn't want them to perish, but rather that they would turn from their sin and live. Maybe right now you know that you're doing something that's leading you down the road to hell. If you want to repent, you have to turn around. It's excellent. Our friend uh, Rick Holland has preached uh, at that church uh, a number of times, and if you think about them, you can pray for uh, for that church plant uh, going there. What an excellent overview of of repentance, and that's what we're talking about. The study that we're working through deals with sanctification. And so why are we talking about repentance? Because repentance has a big part in in the process of sanctification. So we've already established in, in, in our last uh, two, two, two times together on this topic that regeneration is the new birth. So you come to Christ, you're dead in your sins, you don't desire God, you, you, you desire yourself, your self is on the throne, and then regeneration happens, salvation happens. You repent and believe, and new life comes in. And then... The process starts. As they say, sometimes it gets, it, it, that's whenever it actually gets hard. Um, when Before you, you knew the Lord, you, you sinned, and it, it probably didn't bother you that much. But now that you do know the Lord, when you sin, it bothers you greatly, and there's this turmoil. Well, that, that battle that you're going through in that turmoil, of, I desire to, to do what's pleasing to God, I love Him now, and yet I have this, this other war, this other law in my, in my members, Paul said, in my flesh, that, that battle is, is part of sanctification. So regeneration is, is birth, sanctification is growth, it's, it's, it's growing up, just like, just like a, a baby uh, in... Uh, in in, in the world, you you grow to a to a young man, and then and then ultimately to an adult. That's that's what we're we're aiming at maturity in Christ. So so what does that process of change uh, look like? We, we've talked about what is true sanctification uh, and what it's uh, what it's not. Um, and so we're 
We're on page 117, and we're looking at four critical components to the process of, of change. And last time we talked about the first component. How do I change? What does change look like? How do I move from, from a, a worldly way of, of living, the way that I used to live, to, to, a, to a life that pleases God? And, and the first step in that process, first component, is to recognize and acknowledge your guilt. And you heard him talk about that on the, on the video. He used the analogy just like your mother has rules in, in her kitchen um, that you have to obey. God has rules. This is his world. He, he created it. Um, the reason that, that God can tell us what to do, what's right and what's wrong, what's pleasing and what's not, what's black and what's white, is because he created this world. He's the ruler of this world. We are his creation. And you could even see in, in the way that, that people live, the, the sin nature, the fall, because nobody wants to acknowledge that or submit to that. I mean, there's this rebelliousness that's there. Who likes to be told what to do, whether it's, whether it's the government telling you what to do, whether it's your parents telling you what to do. Ultimately, that, that, that comes from you know, well, God telling you what to do because there's a rebelliousness that comes from the sin nature. So the first part of a change whether that's change in general or change specifically in an area, is to acknowledge, to, to recognize and acknowledge guilt. I'm, I'm headed in the wrong direction. I'm not the master. I am, the, I am the, the servant. So we talked about what that looks like. That Just like he said, where, did, where has shame gone? We talked about that guilt is something that the world wants to excuse away. Guilt is a bad thing, they say. Get rid of it. And yet God uses it for, for good. And that led us to the conscience. The conscience... It is that part of, of, of you, that part of man that every human being has, believer or unbeliever. It's part of your, of your makeup that, that God uses uh, in that process of, of change, of, of recognizing guilt. Now, your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. And if you want a, 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 a full-blown, full-orbed presentation of the conscience. Uh, there's like a four-part series online uh, on the website that you can that you can listen to. But the best way I can describe it is your conscience is is kind of like a smoke detector. Um, it is programmed to go off, um, and it's programmed based on the highest. Uh, highest moral standard that that you understand it it doesn't always sync up with the Bible um, it's there it's a mechanism that you have and it it excuses you or it accuses you your conscience either condemns you for what you think is wrong or it says no you're you're okay and that's happening all the time whenever you, whenever you hear something and that conscience is instructed. By, by a number of things. It can be instructed rightly or wrongly. Um, you say, why do people do what they do and don't feel bad about it when you can clearly see it's wrong? Why is their conscience not working? Well, you read in your homework some reasons, of uh, some ways in which we can silence our conscience. But one of the reasons that the conscience doesn't go off in, 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 in you or in someone else is because of it's been instructed wrongly. Your conscience sounds off based on whatever you think is right or wrong. So that can come from your culture, 
your mom, your dad, everybody has a conscience, but it can be instructed uh, wrongly. Um, and then it can also be instructed rightly, which is our goal. How do you rightly instruct your conscience? Um, well, you let God instruct it. You go to the Word of God. And that's a process that, that you, you go through. Um, and so we talked about how the importance to have a clean conscience. So if the conscience is what sounds off, once lets you know, accuses you, you just did wrong, and it happens in your heart, it's a tool that God can use, but it's not infallible. It can, it, it can sound off wrongly, and it can also be silent when it should be going off. But the conscience is that tool that, that accuses you. You just did, you just did wrong. Um, then it's important to, to treat that care, carefully. You don't want to trample your, your conscience. You don't want to pull the, the, the batteries out of the smoke detector. Um, you, you don't want that little sensor that's in there that, that smells the smoke to get full of dust. Um, and so, so it doesn't go off as, as, as quickly. So if the conscience is what goes off and accuses you or excuses you, um, then how important is it to have a, a clean conscience? So the first thing that we talked about or that we looked at in our notes is the importance of a, of a clean conscience. So what does it mean to have a clean conscience? How would somebody say, I, um, I, I, I need to cleanse my conscience? What would you say to them? What does that mean? They need to okay, they need to repent. All right. The importance of a of a clean conscience. Do you have a clean conscience this morning? Is there something bothering you, nagging you? Is there something that is accusing you? Um, you see what David was talking about in Psalm 32 when when he was talking about that God's hand was on him day and night. The conscience was operating. You can get away from church. You can not show up for a sermon or you can not read your Bible, but you can't get away from your conscience, can you? And the Lord uses that truth that, that's there to press on that, on that conscience. So what about clean conscience, the importance of a, of a clean conscience? What does that mean? Okay, confession is clearly part of that. Here's what I would say. Uh, a clean conscience is is one unburdened uh, of condemnation. A conscience is clean, is not condemned. I, I know of nothing. Paul said, I, I know I'm void of offense between God and man. Void of offense. I, I don't know of anything that God could could rightly call me guilty on that I haven't confessed. Now, are you guilty? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole point. The Lord forgives you. He cleanses you. But you, you know that feeling when, when you haven't sought the Lord for, for forgiveness, when you haven't confessed, when you're continuing to do something that you're not supposed to do, that, that condemnation, that, that sense that I've, I've done wrong and I'm still doing wrong and, and I haven't turned and started moving in the right direction, the conscience is, is part of that. So a clear conscience is it's unburdened by that. It doesn't mean that you're sinless or you didn't sin yesterday or even this morning, it means that you the conscience has been unburdened. And so how is the conscience unburdened? And Peter said confession is part of the process. You confess. We're confessing people. Um, that happens by confession, by forgiveness. Um, 
by repentance, by a process of change. And so the second thing we're talking about here is the reality of, of an abused conscience. Just as you can unburden your conscience, you can also abuse your conscience. Um, now, if you lived in a home that that had, uh, maybe it was a really old home, and it it heats by, by gas, uh, natural gas, and the lines, the gas lines were run a really long time ago, and, and you have already had a number of, of leaks where you had, to, you had to solder the pipes, and, and there's some pipes in the wall that you can't see, um, and yet, but, but you already know that, that it's a potential issue, and you're living in this house. It's the only place you have to live. And obviously it's really cold outside, so you have to heat the home. And you're there with your wife and your kids or, or, or your family. Would it be important to make sure that your smoke detectors worked? <laughs> you would probably treat those with, with care, wouldn't you? Well, think of the conscience in the, in, the same, in the same way. You can abuse. You wouldn't abuse the smoke detector in that scenario you you don't want to abuse your conscience either. How can we abuse our conscience? Well, there are four things listed here. The conscience can be seared or or calloused. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, what do you think of when, uh, when you think of something seared or calloused? What does that mean? What does the Bible talk about whenever your conscience is abused? By you've abused your conscience by searing it or or allowing calluses to develop on it. Well, you burn the nerve endings. That's right. So it's a sensitivity issue, isn't it? It's exactly right. So it's a sensitivity issue. So how do you do that to your conscience? How's that possible? By ignoring it or just continuing in that same. And both of those things go together. Ignoring and continuing. To to continue is to ignore your conscience. Your conscience is going off and you're not you're you're continuing. Yeah. Cody? Blisters come first. There you go. It's true. Second degree. That's good. Yeah. There's a sensitivity issue. You can desensitize your conscience. By, by continuing. So every time you violate your conscience, you desensitize it. The wonderful thing about the, the Lord is, is that, that he can resensitize it. How does that happen? Well, you confess and you repent, and then the more of the word of God you put in you, the, the stronger your conscience will, will be. You instruct it rightly. Um, Here's another one, untrained, the untrained conscience. Conscience must be trained. It's exercise in the, in the word. Conscience must be, the conscience can be abused by being untrained. 
Hebrews 5.14. talks about the practice of righteousness where your, your senses are trained. Now, what do you think about when you hear the word training? Exercise. There's some difficulty okay. involved in yeah. training because you're building muscle. Muscle memory. So you're doing the same thing over and over <clears throat> to the point that it becomes natural. You don't even think about it. Well, you can do the opposite with your conscience. Your conscience can be can be uninstructed by the Word of God, and so it's 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 going off all the time, you know. Um, and then there's all kinds of things out there. This is where it's important not to put extra biblical things, um, not to go beyond the text, and say God said something when God didn't do it. Whether it's with your kids or whether it's a pastor from a pulpit or wherever it might be, because what you're doing is you're instructing the conscience, and it's going to go off. Um, and so you, a conscience can be abused by being untrained. It can also be overactive. Romans 14, 1 through 5, I just said, uh, going off when it shouldn't go off. Ever had your smoke detector go off in the middle of the night when there wasn't a fire? And then all of them go off? Three o'clock in the morning. It's not a pleasant experience. Um, you can live life that way, be unuseful to the Lord, and then biblically uninformed, just plain, just plain ignorance. So how does all that happen? You, well, you reject the pangs of your conscience, you violate it, and then you continue in sin, which makes you more and more apathetic, less spiritual appetite. The more you sin, the less you're hungry for God. The longer you continue in sin, the less of an appetite you'll have for God. And so you wonder why, let's say you're going through a, a dry spell, or, or let's say you're, you're sitting there and you're watching people on Sunday morning just drinking the Word, and God's really growing them, and they're exciting, and you're listening to the exact same sermon and it's just kind of bouncing off your heart. Or maybe you're completely uninterested. Or think about whatever before you came to Christ. I had no desire to read the Bible. It was like the most boring thing on the planet. How ignorant of me. And yet, one of the first things that happened whenever I came to the Lord was a hunger. I want to know. A desire to drink it in. Well, you continue in sin, you have less and less of an appetite. Um, and then one of the other ways that it happens is First uh, Timothy four two is uh, teaching false doctrine. Teaching false doctrine and listening to false doctrine can can abuse your conscience to where it won't work um, properly. So hopefully you you looked up those verses and it was it was helpful to you because we're talking about guilt and how the conscience works in the process of guilt. And if the first step in change is you to acknowledge and realize, then the conscience is an important part of that. Well, look at the second component. It's number two here. The second component in the process of change, true change, is repentance. It's repentance. So an acknowledgement, an understanding... And then the second is 
is repentance. And to repent means to, to turn, to change, to change a mind that that goes along with a, a change of behavior, a change of, of action. There are three parts here to, to true repentance. There's the timing of repentance, the task of repentance, and then the signs of true repentance. How do you know if you've repented? Well, it's a biblical word. Preachers talk about it a lot. I find it in the Bible. Repentance is part of change. So, if the the example that he used there was the rapist that that was arrested, is that rapist repentant if he only acknowledges that he did wrong? But then he, when he's out on bail, he goes and and abuses another woman. Oh, you say no. Um, Acknowledgement is the first step, but then after the acknowledgement of guilt, I'm guilty before God, then comes repentance. So the change of mind, you change your mind about sin, you change your mind about God, and then that works itself out in, in action, in a, in a change, of, change of life. And so there's the timing of repentance. So we have the initial repentance. So repentance is necessary for, for genuine conversion. Unsaved people must turn from sin. Sin is self-rule. It's, it's autonomy. Now, a lot of times whenever you and I think of the word sin, we think of doing wrong. Like, don't lie or don't commit adultery or don't steal. It's a law. It's a line that God has drawn in the a moral line in His universe. So we think of sin as is do's and don'ts. Don't do this. Do that. So we think of sin, we kind of dumb it down to that level, don't we? That's a transgression. It's, it's clearly a violation and guilt. It's part of your guilt. You remember in Psalm 32, there are three words: transgression, sin, and, and iniquity. Well. Your guilt before God is a lot more than just stepping over a stepping over a, a line. Um, there's that iniquity word, which is the the autonomy and the self rule. It's what causes you to chafe against God telling you what to do or somebody else telling you what to do. And so there's the the timing of repentance. How does repentance happen? Is it a one time deal? Um, what about after you come to Christ? Do do Christians repent five years after they get saved? Are they are they still in the process of repentance? And the answer is yes, but that begins with initial repentance. So you can't, you heard me say, salvation is not praying a prayer and getting your get-out-of-hell-free card and then going to live the way that you want to live. Yes, you call upon the, the name of the Lord. Yes, you're forgiven. And therefore the penalty of sin doesn't lie upon your soul any longer. But, but it's more than that. Jesus is not only Savior, He's Lord means he's God. You might not know exactly how to please the Lord in all the areas. And in the moment that you come to Christ doesn't mean that, you know, you're going to get up from the, uh, you know, from your, your knees in prayer with, you know, with, with your mind completely clean and you're never going to say a curse word again. And, and you're just going to, I mean, that, that's not what it means to, 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 to make Christ Lord. It means, though, an act of submission. There's a desire to submit to him, and then that's worked out the rest of your life. You learn more and more to how, how to submit to, 
to the Lord. So there's an initial repentance. And so you turn from self-rule. You turn from, a, from, a, from autonomy. And then there's progressive repentance. Repentance is, it has a beginning point and then, and then it continues to happen. As a Christian, you're, you're a repenting person. Um, you something that I've heard Mark say on a regular basis. The Christian has always has something in 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 both of his hands. He he walks around living his life, ready to repent, willing to forgive. So you're 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 constantly um, um, repenting and forgiving because people are sinning against you and and you're sinning against God and and others. So repentance remains continually necessary for the for the believer. You don't ever grow to the point in your Christian life that you outgrow repentance. Believers must continually turn from sins. There's expressions of lingering desires of the flesh. An 85-year-old man who whose wife has been in heaven for 10 years, who's laying in the nursing home bed, is still tempted to look at the nurse's backside whenever she walks out of the room. And he's been a Christian for 50 years. The flesh remains. It, 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 it's there. It's something that you battle against. You have to constantly repent. So the timing of repentance is initial. It's... It's also progressive. But then there's something that we really have to be careful about. There's, there's counterfeit repentance. There's a false repentance that doesn't bring about forgiveness, but rather produces death. And I think that out of anything in this lesson, this is probably the one of the the most significant part. So I want you to open to 2 Corinthians 7. And I think this is very helpful. Because you know the word repent and you know you need to repent, but but what does repentance actually look like? So they say one of the ways that you train they train people to recognize counterfeit money they don't study counterfeit money. They, they study what, what real money looks like. They handle it. And if you handle real money long enough, you'll be able to spot a fake. And so we're going to study what real repentance looks like. And then from that, you'll be able to discern what's, what's false repentance. Did Jesus connect what we say with what we do in the Bible? Yeah. Um, there's that really scary part in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. He's preached the Sermon on the Mount. He comes to the end. He's getting ready to give the invitation in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, there are two ways, two gates, uh, you know, two foundations to build your life, you know, on the rock or on the shifting sand. Um, and then he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of, of, of God or the kingdom of heaven, right? Now watch what he does. Watch what he does. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is that the proper proper term for, for Christ? Yeah. Your God, 
you're Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, but who does he say is getting in? Be who does the will of my Father. Now, can you just do the will of, of, of the Father in the sense of doing works and back your way into heaven? You know the answer that's no. What's he saying? What we say and what we do is a, is a, is a full-orbed perspective of what's really happening in our life. We can't say and then not do. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, yeah, he's my Savior. And then I live the way that I live like he's not. So Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. The tree bears certain fruit. First John, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, live our lives in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. Those two things go together, what we say and, and what, we, what, we, what we do. So if, if, if there's a specific sin that I'm committing, um, let's say you come to me and you say, I want to repent, help me, for, help me repent. You're saying the right things. Um, is there is there a passage in the Bible that actually shows us what's going on in the heart of repentance? Okay, I repent. I've stopped doing these things. I've stopped looking at stuff on the Internet that I shouldn't be looking at. I've stopped doing that. I've stopped the action. Is, is there something, is there a passage in the Bible that shows us an x-ray of the heart that connects what's going on in the heart with the action? Have you ever had somebody say to you, um, well, you can't see my heart. Only God can see my heart. You don't know whether, whether I know the Lord or not. Most of the time when people say that, it's a cop-out. But this passage we're getting ready to look at is actually shows us. It's an x-ray of, the, of a repentant heart. Of course you stop the action. But here's an x-ray of the heart. Jim, do you have something? Yeah, from Psalm 32 that you read earlier, it says um, we have that spirit of guile. Mm. Yeah. And that's the, that's what it all boils down to. If you don't yeah. get allow that spirit of guile to the Lord, yeah. our heart will always force us into sin. Yeah, deceitful nature. You're honest about your sin, which is point one. You, you're you're nailing it there. In the process of change, it's to it's to be without guile before God and man. What does without guile mean? Without deceit. You're you're honest. You're honest about your sin. And you're honest toward toward God. But how do I know whether that's actually happening in my heart? I mean, I know that sin. I don't want to do that. All right, I'll stop doing it. Have you ever had somebody uh, you know, stop doing something only three months later to, to start doing it again? I mean, what what's going on there? Well, here is an x-ray of a repentant heart. You can't see my heart. How do you know whether you've repented and it's actually taken in the heart? Well... Well, look at what it says here in 2 Corinthians 7, and we'll look at verse 9. Now I rejoice, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians calling them on their sin. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, it was by his letter. I, I don't rejoice that I had to hurt you in rebuking you. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. I don't like to hurt you, but I'm not going to apologize for the rebuke. Your brother that rebukes you, and even if it hurts, you should be thankful for that brother. Paul says, I'm, I am 
I am happy not that it hurt, but that that pain led to repentance, made you sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. And now look at verse 10. Watch the contrast here. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance, produces a repentance without without regret. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There's godly sorrow that produces repentance, and then there's human regret that doesn't produce anything. It actually can deceive you and bring about death. You remember the rapist that he was talking about on here? He's He sheds tears. He's really sorry that he got caught. He's really sorry about the, the consequences that are going to come in his life. That's, that's human regret. You can regret doing something. I regret that I did this, and it's, it's hurt somebody else. I, I, I regret that I did this, and, it, and it's, it's going to bring consequences in my life. But, but that doesn't always produce repentance, does it? Do you feel bad whenever you do wrong and you know you, you, you've done wrong? Whatever it is. You, you've spoken harshly to your wife, to your child. You've looked at something you shouldn't. You can regret that. Man, I wish I hadn't done that. I feel horrible about that. What's happening? Your conscience is condemning you. You can have human regret and your conscience is condemning you, but that's not always godly sorrow that then leads to repentance. It's not always a a change of mind that you see that sin exactly the way that God does, and then that turns into a a, a killing of that sin. It's it, it's something that that's in you that you got to get rid of, and you're going to go to war against that. Well, what does godly sorrow look like in the heart? Well, Paul gives us an X-ray here. Watch, watch what he says. He's talking about the Corinthians. For sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance, but sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, well, what does the word behold mean? What, what's Paul doing here? Behold, he's saying, look, uh, this is evident. I can see this in your life. And I'm pointing it out to you, Corinthians. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow. He's saying, look at, at what this godly sorrow produced in you. Godly sorrow that produces repentance. He's given us a... a <coughs> You can't see the heart. I can't see yours. But but God says that that you can see these evidences going on in the heart if you're truly repentant. And he actually gives seven things here. That's going on in the, a genuinely uh, repentant heart. For behold, what earnestness this very thing... This godly sorrow has produced in you. It's in you. It's, it's coming out of you. It's in your heart. It has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves? What indignation? What fear? What longing? What zeal? What avenging, uh, avenging of wrong? In everything, watch this, you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in the matter. It's in the heart and it's working out. What does a repentant heart look like? Looks, what does it look like? It, it begins with earnestness. He says, what earnestness. 
It's an awareness and a, and a pursuit. It's sincere. You talk about the, the term comes to my mind, earnest money. What does that mean? It's a concept of it's something that's earnest. It's something that's sincere. It's money that you put up showing your sincerity, that you're going to actually follow through. And Paul says, I, I saw earnestness in you. Well, the first thing that you'll see in a repentant heart is an earnestness. It's, a, it's an awareness and a pursuit. There's a sincerity there, a sincere heart. Look at the second thing that's there. He says, what vindication of yourselves. And you say, that sounds kind of weird. As I repent and vindicate myself. It almost sounds like I want to defend myself. It's exactly the opposite. It's a, it's a desire to make your repentance known. You want to... You want to... Um, you want to you want to clear your name of the stigma of the repentance you're you want to you you've named the name of Christ and you have smeared the name of Christ in your heart or publicly or otherwise and I want to vindicate that I am I want to I want to vindicate my testimony I have a great desire to do that see how these are attitudes in the heart a sincerity in the heart a a vindication to make your repentance known the third one, he just keeps drilling down. What indignation. It's an attitude to loathing of your sin. I mean, do you hate your sin? Sins that I commit over and over that, that I, I'll continually find myself coming back to, I hate them. I just loathe the fact that, that here I am. I mean, you can even... You can even Sense that in your prayer. Here I am again, Lord. You know, Paul in in Romans seven. You hate your sin, so you say, "I acknowledge I sinned. I did the wrong thing." You know, let's say you're confessing to your wife or speaking harshly to her or whatever, and you say, "I know that's wrong." You can do that intellectually because you know it's wrong to yell at your kids. But. But genuine repentance, there's a there's a there's a hatred of that. There's a loathing of what of what you did. So there's a connection of, of acknowledgement to to repentance, to to what's going on in the heart, and then that'll work its way out in an action. You hate what you've done. Number four, you fear. Paul said he saw fear. This is all every all of this he he saw the in the Corinthians. There's a fear. It's the the, the idea of trembling. Before God, I'm going to be judged for this. I could be judged for this. He says there's a longing. What indignation, what fear, what, what longing. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a yearning, a desire to be restored. I mean, these are, these are attitudes of the heart. What zeal. Um, it's a passion. Pursuing this zealously. It's not a back burner issue. I'm blame shifting. I'm, this is me. I own it. And I want to make it right. And then the last one, he says, what avenging of the wrong. It's a willingness to take whatever consequences there are. You're not saying, I, yeah, I did that, but he did this or she did that. It's It's me. 
That's what David said. Against you and you alone, Lord. I'm not looking at anybody else's sin. I'm owning mine. Mark? I was just thinking when you were the repentance of our sin, like you said, is a continuous repentance. Mm-hmm. We're more repenting than we are just repenting. Yeah. So, you know what I'm saying? I think that's what yeah. you're trying to say. And it produces fruit for a long time. I know when my older kids call me out on my, my behavior before I was saved, I could take ownership of that and I'm still repenting over that. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I'm willing to confess it, own it, and I think that's where the fruit really. Works. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a change of mind that's that that works its way out in action, and the and the the path that it takes. I change my mind about sin. I acknowledge the, my guilt, and then that's going to change my behavior. And, and to get from point A to point B, it goes through the heart. And the heart is, is what you're seeing right now, this picture of these attitudes that are coming out where you're genuinely acknowledging it. And then that's going to turn into a change of behavior. And as Mark says, you don't repent, you're repenting. I mean, you do repent. There's a moment where you turn, but then you start to walk in that direction. And the good thing is the farther and farther you get away from that moment of turning, the the, the less pull there is to, to go back to whatever that sin is. Bob? I was just going to say, I think it's really point out the um, repentance of perhaps the Catholic Church mm. um, where they believe that it's the fear of the Lord that's motivating them as if every time they don't repent they're condemned and then they come mm. back to God and they're they're good with him again and then yeah. they repent again. You know, that's not the repentance we're talking about. No. Here. Romans 2.4 says the kindness of God leads mm. to repentance. Right. And so we always have to be rooted in the gospel mm. while we're repenting because our motivation is out of love. Yeah. You know, it's not like, oh, we're good with God, we're not good with God. Right. That's, that's false. That's exactly that's right. A good reminder. It is. That's why we say we're talking about sanctification, and that happens on the platform of justification. You know, say it simply when you hit rock bottom in your life, you're still on the rock. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful thing? So, I mean, you're, you're, we're talking about the, the throes of sanctification and the guilty conscience and all of that is taking place on, this, on, on, the, on the rock of Christ and you never fall off of that rock. He, he, he's in the palm of your hand. I mean, you're there going about sanctification, but, but you're fixed you're, because he's the one. He is your propitiation. What does John say? Little children, I'm happy that you sin not. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is propitiation. Yeah. And yeah. to follow up on that, Pastor, um, the cause agent here is God. It's mm-hmm. for godly sorrow. So when we're dead in our trespasses and sins, it's God who quickens us. Mm-hmm. And then as we have a desire to stay close to the Lord, that's His precious love. Yeah, it is. That is drawing us to Him. Amen. And as you said, once you were saved, you had a hunger mm-hmm. for the Word. Yeah. And a pastor once said that if you don't have a hunger for God's word, hmm. perhaps you're dead. Yeah, that's that's exactly what Peter says, isn't it? You, you yearn for the for the sincere milk of the word. It's like a little baby. It's good. So again, next time somebody says to you, "You can't see my heart," you say, "No, but God can." And here's an X-ray. You see this going on in your heart? Or the next time you say, "I've repented." Look to see if these attitudes are there. Because that will help you see whether what's happening is human regret. 
I wish that hasn't, this hasn't happened in my life, and I'm sorry about the consequences. Or this is actually sorrow wrought by God. This is genuine, and it's going to change your life. So those are two completely different things. One leads to life, one leads to death. So there's the timing of repentance. It's initial, it's progressive. It can be counterfeit, false repentance that doesn't bring about forgiveness, but rather produces death. It's the person who says, but doesn't do, and they don't do because this is not going on in the heart. So what does repentance look like? Here's the task of repentance. And notice, as Mark pointed out, these are all I-N-G words. Comprehending, confessing, choosing. What's a participle? Well, what, let me say it this way. What's, what's different about a participle? They have these I, it has an ing. It's, a, it's a, something that's continually happening. You don't confess. You're confessing. Comprehending. It's the task of repentance. What does repentance look like tangibly? Well, we must see our sin as it relates to God before we can repent. A change of mind is required. Why is it important to hear the law? Why is it important to hear the Bible? Why is it important to sit under preaching? Why is it important to read the Word? You say, well, I've, uh, the, you know, the pastor's preaching on forgiveness this coming Sunday. I've, I've already, and, and, you know, I've already heard that passage. Um, I don't care if you've heard that passage a thousand times. <laughs> you need to hear it again. Um, doesn't the Bible say the same thing over and over and over? Yeah. We're very forgetful. So we must see our sin as it relates to God before we can repent. Have you ever sat under the exact same same topic or maybe even the same passage and then all of a sudden the lights come on? So it's a change of mind that's required. And then confession happens. After the your mind is changed, then your mouth begins to work. To confess means to say the same thing. Two Greek words. Homo, that's used as a, as a slur, right? Why? What's a homosexual? Same sex. Same sex. Yeah. What's a, you know, a homo sapien? It's not the same thing as a homosexual. The same. Legeo. You, you, you know John 1, in the beginning was the word, the logos, Logeo, to speak. So it's it's same speaking. It's it's to say the same thing about your sin that, that God does. To see your sin rightly. That's the comprehending part. And then to say the same thing about it to God and to, to others. So mankind or a pastor or a church, whether it's the Catholic Church or 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 a Baptist. They're not the ones that define what is sin and what's not. God does. And you have to see what God says is sin and comprehend that. And then you acknowledge that. I acknowledge that's sin. I acknowledge that that is, that that is wicked. And we, we talked last time, I think, about, about some ways that we, we kind of we squish around that in blame shifting. We're masters at justifying our behavior, aren't we? <laughs> We're masters at taking the edge off. Um, so somebody who's repentant doesn't do that. 
They say the same thing about it. Rough edges and all. Um, so when you're talking about your sin, if somebody else comes up, it is a telltale sign that you're blame shifting and you're not saying the same thing about your sin as God does. To confess means to say the same thing. We must acknowledge to God the fact that our sin, the fact of our sin, and agree with God about the nature of our sin. Now, what did he just? What did he just do there? He's putting two things together, isn't he? So confession acknowledges the the fact of our sin, and it agrees with God about the nature of our sin. Talk to me about that. Talk about the same thing that he's speaking of. I think Paul spoke of it in Romans 7. That that's in our fleshly nature. It's a part of who we are. Mm-hmm. It, didn't, it didn't come from someone else. Yeah. It comes from within. And the actions are just the evidence. So he's talking about... Fact in nature, right? I mean, you can say, I did wrong, and this was wrong, but you can still be far from from agreeing with God about the nature of it, where it comes from. Did you have something? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, what we want. Like admitting, this is, I wanted this more than I wanted God. Okay. Not just, I have sinned against God, but I wanted God more than God. That's good. That's excellent. Did you have something, Mark? Or you're just looking, okay. So, confessing, to say the same thing, you acknowledge the fact. Yes, God says this is wrong, but it came from me. It, it came from my desires, and those desires are, are wicked. I mean, the more that you, you, you hear about the biblical doctrine of repentance, the more you're, you're driven back to what Jim was saying. This is impossible unless God does this in our hearts, isn't it? Isn't that exactly what Paul said to Timothy? Um, God works repentance? I mean, who can do this on their own? Who can do this by, by human will or, or human effort? Uh, who can come to this understanding on their own? Uh, apart from the Spirit of God convincing. Remember, remember what the Spirit's role? It's to, it's to convict us of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. The word convict means to convince. The Spirit convinces you. That this is wrong. The Spirit's convincing work is, is, is His work in repentance. And He does that through the Word, through, through God announcing to you this is wrong and, and, and this is what repentance really looks like and this is the x-ray of the heart. And then the Spirit convinces you, yes, yes, exactly right. And then He begins to give you the ability, the energy, the desires. What's Philippians say? We're in Philippians. Um, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you. For God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Both to will, to desire, and the ability. The desire and the ability. God is at work in you, giving you holy desires and the ability to carry out those holy desires. And because of that, then you work. You you strive. You, you obey. And you do that with fear and, and trembling. And... It, and and if you, you, you're going through repentance and you get to that point where you're just like, I can't do this, that's a good place to be. You're almost there. <laughs> you're not there yet. You're almost there. In salvation or in repenting over a sin. Comprehending, confessing, 
And then there's choosing. All right, I acknowledge it. I comprehend it. My mind's changed. It now begins to run through my heart. I'm, I'm confessing that to God and to others. And part of that confession is, is the fact that it's sin and, and the nature comes from me. I'm grieved in my heart about that. And now I'm making choices. I am True repentance always includes a willful resolve not to repeat the sin. Now notice what it didn't say. True repentance always includes a willful resolve not to repeat the sin. It didn't say true repentance always includes never doing the sin again. Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> That's not now. That's heaven. That's glorification. We're in sanctification. The penalty of all of your sins was paid for on the cross, past, present, and future. And you hate them, and you're battling against them, and you're confessing, and you're repenting. And, and the more you practice that, the more you do that, it, it muscle memory kicks in, and, and you grow, you become more mature in Christ, you get stronger, you sin less and less. There should be a progressive nature to, to, your, to your life. You're growing, but you're still going to sin, sadly. But true repentance always includes a willful resolve to not repeat the sin. I don't want to do that again. And part of the ways that God works repentance is when you do that again, you'll remember that willful resolve. I don't want to do that again, and I did it again. I did it again. And, and doesn't that motivate you? Isn't that like a prod? It, it is. But always remember that you're Christ's. He loves you. And he will forgive you. He told us to forgive one another 490 times, 7 times 70. Um, you think God's going to be less forgiving? A million times more. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I just think my son and I were talking about this last night. We were talking about Romans 7 and I said the great thing is that after Romans 7 comes Romans 8, 1. There is, so we don't lose hope. Mm -hmm. I mean, Paul sounded hopeless. Oh, wretched. That's good. That I am. Yeah. Then he said, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Amen. Amen. Here's the thing that allows Amen. us to have hope. We're, we are wretched. Yeah. But here's our hope. Yeah. We ever just thought about God's forgiveness? The fact that He's forgiven you, you know you better than anybody else. You're just overwhelmed. You just, <laughs> it's just, I mean, he forgave me, and I stand continually forgive, forgiven. And that's what motivates me to want to live for God. Not that I, I'm going to fall off the page into hell. That's a fearful thing, for sure. Um, but it's kindness, as Bobby said earlier. So there's a choosing. All right, look at the signs of repentance. We talked about what was going on in the heart in 2 Corinthians 7. The x-ray of the heart, there's attitudes that are there. What are signs of true repentance? Well, restitution is one. To set things right. The repentance center must fulfill any obligations to the offended party. This is both an outward confession when it is appropriate and a willingness to accept the consequences of our sin. 
the throes of my of my heart, throes of my conscience, and I would say the first five years of coming to Christ were some of the the most blessed and also most difficult. Because I lived for 24 years as an unbeliever. And I sinned greatly against people. And I can remember just just continually things coming to my mind. I don't mean like one sermon. I mean like over, over a period of years of people. It was just like deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, immediately when I came to Christ, I wanted to reconcile with with a family member that I was that I was 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 had an had an odd against, an offense against. But it didn't stop there, you know. And then it just it just drives deeper. And then you know, I, I wanted to confess things that I'd done to my wife, to you know, to my family, to other people. And then it just keeps drilling down. And, and then and I'm going back to things that I'm remembering when I did in high school and and even before of that. And it's just like this: I want to get it out. I, I, and it wasn't for me. I, I mean, I genuinely felt I wronged these people. And I thought about things that I'd done when I was 14 or 15 years of age, and and I want I want to get rid of that. Um, and I had to get counsel. Is it right to do that? Is it not to right to do that? I can remember thinking just just very transparently. I can remember thinking about at 24, looking up people that were that were my same age that were already married you know as a 16 year old boy reading um you know as a as a saved man reading um uh, you know the bible and realizing it's my responsibility you know not to lead another young lady into sin and then and then thinking back of how I did that and wanting to look her up and ask her forgiveness I wanted to do that with everybody that I'd done that with. It was a desire that I had. And then going to my pastor and him going, I don't, she's, she's, she's married now. I don't think her husband would, would take too kindly to you calling her up and confessing something you did when you were 16. So there is a point where you, you need counsel of what's right and what's wrong. It was wiser to leave it there to confess it to God. But my point is that there was a desire. I want to set things right if I can. And the repentant sinner must, must fulfill any obligations. It's an outward confession, when appropriate, but then a willingness to accept the consequences. I can remember thinking things like, wow, man, if I confess that, that might cause me some problems. But Lord, it's in your hands. A willingness to accept the consequences. This is what David did in Psalm 51. The restitution... I can remember a man uh, coming to Christ probably five, you know, five years ago. Totally unrelated, he he he'd sinned in a specific way, and he confessed this to his wife, and of course she was very mad, and and um, and uh, he ended up coming to Christ. And one of the first things that he wanted to do was go back and make restitution for somebody that he worked for when he took money out of the till. He was working there. It was like. Fifty dollars. Um, look at the second one: reconciliation. True repentance will cause us to do whatever we can to transform the conflict into a peaceful and edifying friendship. Reconciliation is reconciliation always possible with other human beings? 
um, the best of your ability, be at peace with all men, as it lies within you. It's not always possible, but as it lies within you, it's what you desire, and you'll do what you can to transform the conflict into a peaceful and edifying friendship. Somebody just asked me counsel this past week about um, a situation that happened in a church that's that's in another another state, and um, there was conflict and, and and sin that that took place between um, two people. And the question was, should they both repented? Should they remain in that church? And it was a situation that could be very difficult for them to remain in the same place. It's, you got to be careful with these principles. Reconciliation. Get some counsel there too if you need it. But your desire would be to transform the conflict into a peaceful and edifying situation. And then, and then number three, regret. This is really Second Corinthians seven. This is the regret part. True repentance may not always be accompanied by emotions, especially those that are visible to others. But in many cases, a feeling of sorrow corroborates other evidences and points to real change in thinking. Emotional responses alone, however, don't prove that repentance is genuine. But if you want to see an x-ray of the, the attitudes that ought to be going in your heart, you saw it in 2 Corinthians 7. And then we end with this. Here's a note. We must remember that not every case of repentance requires all of the above changes. And we must be very careful to allow the fruits of repentance to be defined by God rather than man. Be very careful of putting stipulations. Well, you'll repent. You will have repented if I see this, or you should do that. Um, godly sorrow, the earnestness, may look different in your life as, as in mine. You, and so it's a process of sifting. Something that you've heard me say before, and I will continue to say it, time and truth walk together. What is true will work itself out over time. It will be consistent. If you've repented today, you're going to be repenting three months from now if it's real. Or you're going to be battling in that process. Time and truth walk together. They're your friends. So when the person comes to you and says, I repent, I repent, and they've sinned against you, then you forgive them. But but you're also watching to see whether that repentance is, is, is real. Time and truth walk together. Any closing comments or thoughts? Yeah, Mark and then Mark and then Ed. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite verses, uh, Good Conscience, Acts 24, 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience both before God and before men. And that uh, he takes pains, or in other versions they'll say strives. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it just comes easily. No. And one of the ways is getting the word of God into our lives. Mm -hmm. Amen. allows for that clear conscience. Amen. It, it, it's, a, it's a difficult process. It is. It is. Mark? I was just going to say, uh, with Zacchaeus and mm -hmm. Most people who are repentant confess more than what the public, what you know publicly about yourself. It's true. That's how you know the yeah. Only confessing up to the point that you have to, in order to you know to clear the bar. 
<laughs> just just barely got over the goal line. No, a person who's repentant runs through the back of the end zone and through the back of the, the stadium, and he's still running out the door. Yeah, Ed? It just seems to me, it doesn't, I couldn't think of a verse that says exactly this, but true repentance also brings you to thankfulness to God. Because mm. repentance is a gift. And when you get to that point, it's kind of like looking back and saying, thanks, God, because mm-hmm. you got me out of that. Amen. You brought me to it. I'm no longer doing that. Yeah. And I'm happy I'm not doing it. Amen. Amen. Thankfulness. Yeah, we've t- talked about the difficulty of repentance, but there is some sweet fruit that comes from it. Sweet fruit of a clean conscience and joy. David said he, he prayed in repentance. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. I mean, if you have a, a, a burdened conscience, there's nothing like it being cleansed and, and the joy that, that comes from that. And it will give you a heart for other people. Um, one of the benefits that God doesn't glorify us immediately and that we have to go through this, this battle of sin and sanctification is it makes us compassionate toward others. It actually causes, makes us useful vessels. Are, are, you, are you more compassionate toward the sin of somebody else right after you sinned and the Lord has recovered you? Or when you've been doing really good for about a year and you begin, your heart immediately begins to say, uh, you know, I don't know how they could do that, or if they were really serious, you know. Tenderizes our hearts um, when we realize that we're just as big a sinner as, as the other. Amen. Great topic. Um, you can read ahead if you want to. We're going to talk about uh, number three uh, the next time. But let me close in a word of prayer, and then I'll dismiss you. Father, thank you so much for a book called The Bible that gives us clarity that um, we don't have to try to climb uh, a mountain and find some philosopher or guru to tell us um, what's right and what's wrong and, and how to experience the blessings of, of your forgiveness. You lay it out so clearly. And um, I do pray, Father, for, for all of us. pray for anybody in here this morning that has a, a burdened conscience. Um, they wouldn't lose hope. They look to Christ. Be reminded that He is their propitiation. But then help us to follow through, Lord, in, in whatever area that we, we need to. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.